Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. You may remember a while back we had, as a guest on the program, author Joel Selvin. He wrote a book about Burt Burns, the songwriter. So if this one piques your interest, you may go back to the archive, wfmu.org slash Michael, and listen to that one. Uh, we played a ton of great Burn, Burt Burns music. Uh, he had his hands in so many great records, just tons of people. We don't really discuss those here, uh, because I'm talking to Brett Burns, who has directed this documentary about his father. He's also working on a musical, and he's working on a biographical film. This one is a documentary film. Um, this guy was a real character, and uh, for a very interesting reason, he needed to get a lot done in a short time. You'll hear all, all about it, hear all about it in our conversation. Of course, hang on Sloopy here, one of, the, one of Burt Burns' most legacy-endearing hits, just... There's a billion versions of it. It's impossible to screw up. Uh, okay, uh, that's it. Brett Burns here. I'll be back soon with more guests. Check WFMU.org slash Michael for the list of upcoming guests, etc. Hope you enjoy this. Me and Brett Burns. All right, we've been listening to some Burt Burns-related records this morning. There's Irma Franklin's Piece of My Heart. Great record. Uh, and joining us on the telephone, as promised, is the director of, or the co-director of Bang, the Burt Burns story, uh, Brett Burns. Uh, Brett, welcome and good morning. How are you? Good morning, Michael. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, a huge fan of Burt Burns, and uh, just the music is just it's it's huge, you know. There's it's just it's almost a genre until itself of sort of Burt Burns related music, and there is kind of a theme that runs through it all. I, I watched the movie; I really enjoyed it. I, I always enjoy these kind of stories of getting behind the scenes and seeing the people and the stories behind uh, all the songs, and and the the film does a great job with that. Uh, for me, it, it sort of all starts with he had rheumatic fever as a kid; it gave him a heart problem, and he knew he would not have a long life, and I think that pushed him to get a lot done in a short time. Uh, the film points out that he had 51 records on the charts in seven years, 19 in uh, 1964 alone. Uh, is that fair to characterize he was a guy just racing the clock? It is. He uh, That ticking time bomb of a heart from the rheumatic fever as a child was the was really the thing that drove him, I think, to, you know, live as much as he could in the short amount of time that he had. And, you know, it really explains the seven-year meteoric uh, rise that he had as a songwriter and then a record producer and then as a label chief. You know, there was nothing that he didn't do in music in those seven short years before he died. Yeah, the the number of records is astonishing. I mean, he just must have lived, breathed, uh, and ate it. Uh, there's kind of this Latin theme, uh, and uh, the film talks about his visits to Cuba. He actually go to got to go to Cuba when you could just go over there and uh, be a you know American going and having being on vacation. Uh, and those kind of Latin rhythms, the mambo that he brought back. I mean, is he the guy who brought that back, or was that already pop? you know, percolating into pop music records, or was it really just him? Well, I, it's probably never just one person. I mean, Lieber and Stoller brought that sort of Brazilian sound into their music. And so, but uh, Joel Selvin, uh, the author of the, the great biography about my dad, did say that my dad brought Latin rhythms into rock and roll. And, uh, you know, so if Joel said it, it must be true. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of uh, just you're right. There's there's a lot of ideas just kind of happen. And but he was certainly a huge piece of of the happening. Uh, one of the great things about the film is all these talking heads in the film. My favorite is this guy who I'd never heard of called Carmine Wassel Denonia. And he's uh, he's he's kind of like a big teddy bear mobster type of guy. He's died since the film uh, completed. And he kind of is a great uh Introduction to the the mob and the, the the part of the mob in this movie. Your dad definitely rubs shoulders with mobsters, and it's sort of a tough thing to nail down. Uh, like I said, they sort of you know Carmine comes off as a big teddy bear, but that's kind of serious, violent uh, stuff. Did your I mean did did your dad do something for them, or did they just like being around the music? Well, the, one of the first things I learned was that if you were in the business back in those days, you rubbed up against the mob. And so, uh, you know, my dad really wasn't any different than anybody else because uh, everybody, the radio DJs, you know, the songwriters, the labels, everybody had to deal with the mob. The difference with my dad is that uh, he, they loved him on a personal level and he was comfortable with them. And so uh, when he met uh, Tommy Eberly, who was the acting boss of the Genovese family on the 79th Street Boat Basin, that became like a father-son relationship that then, you know, uh, managed manifested itself in my father's business dealings, uh, because whenever anybody tried to rob my dad, they met uh, Tommy. So, uh, you know, but Wazel uh, was a big teddy bear, but also very scary and imposing figure. He wasn't a made man, but he knew everybody like that. And, uh, you know, he uh, he was like a, like a father to, to me and my siblings as we grew up. So there's all these great talking heads in the movie, and they're all effusive about uh, your dad's work. Uh, Paul McCartney and Van Morrison and Keith Richards and Solomon Burke and uh, Sissy Houston. Was it you sitting in the room with those guys, filming those guys? Yes, I interviewed uh, everybody in the film, and uh, you know my co-director Bob Sarles, uh, who's a brilliant uh, documentary filmmaker. He he says that one of the reasons the film is you know comes off the way it does is because all of these people who knew and loved my father really poured their their hearts out to, to me personally when I was interviewing. But it was terrifying sit in front of Paul McCartney and Keith Richards <laughs> and Solomon Burke and have to you know ask them these questions. But uh, they were just so full of love that you know they made it easy. It's not universally effusive. Jerry Wexler says, I'd piss on his grave. Jerry Wexler kind of uh, had, a, you know, definitely a great feel for music and his name's on, you know, a, a million great records. But it's sort of hard to know uh, if he comes off as a good or a bad guy in the movie. What do you what do you think? Well, I, I really hope that people see him uh, both as the hero of the Burt Burns story, because if it wasn't for Jerry Wexler, my father's story would not have been the same. And, uh, you know, it's an extraordinarily important part of my dad's uh, journey in, in the business. But, uh, you know, as we tell in the film, uh, you know, things got really out of hand at the end. And, uh, you know, my father wasn't the only one to find himself on the wrong side of Jerry Wexler. The only difference is my father was the only one that ever walked out smelling like a rose. And again, that was because my dad's, uh, you know, mob buddies came in and and uh beat jerry wexler's mob buddies quite frankly <laughs> wow it's kind of insane it's a kind of a crazy story when you're when you're doing these interviews and, and putting the whole movie together was there surprises were there things people told you that you didn't know yeah, the whole journey has been a journey of discovery for for me personally, you know, and you know, we're going back as far as I can remember just trying to find clues and pieces to my father's story and you know, I didn't know the full depth of the mob relationships when I got started. I have to admit I I learned a lot about that, and some of it was uncomfortable. But uh, the biggest revelation for me personally, besides how obscure my dad was and how completely written out of the history books he was, was that I can make an argument that if he was really one of the greatest, if not 
the greatest of that time and place because he was the only one to be a songwriter, a record producer, a label chief. He wrote the songs by himself or with an array of collaborators. He didn't have a permanent songwriting partner like all of his contemporaries. And uh, he created the Uptown Soul uh, music revolution, um, you know, with Solomon Burke and Garnet Mims and all these great artists. But uh, that happened on his watch. And he was the only one to go to England during the British invasion to work with British acts. So when you look at the totality of his legacy, you know, I know I'm his son, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But I, I can make an <laughs> argument that he was, you know, really one of the greatest of all time. He certainly is one of the greatest. I, I won't argue uh, with you there. Yeah, the Stones, the Animals, the Beatles all covered your dad's songs. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. So, how old were you when he when he passed away? I was only two and a half years old. My little sister was ten months old, and my little brother was two weeks old. He had three kids in three years. So, all of our memories of our dads are someone else's, really. Yeah, that's 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 weird to make a movie about a guy who was your dad, but you barely knew. Yeah, well, he said to my mother, my children will know me through my music. It was something that she repeated to us throughout our childhood, that this was his, uh, you know, his wish or, uh, you know, it was, and he was quite pressing it because um, we did learn uh, and get to know him through his music first, you know, by discovering the, the songs and the body of work and the incredibly autobiographical nature of the songs. Um, but then it was also by searching out his colleagues and his friends. And uh, in the course of making uh, this film, we, we got closer to him. We also brought him back to life on a living stage uh, through a musical that's going to Broadway in the next uh, year or two that was off-Broadway. But that's a whole other story. When he died, and if I'm, I'm remembering this right, he was 38 years old, 1967, and he had like $60,000 worth of cash or a little more than that in his safe, Right. Yeah. This is not the average guy. Did he have? Did he leave a, a collection of records? Did he have one of everything? Did he have all that stuff? Was he a pack rat or or, or no? Well, the, one of the saddest parts of the story, and we didn't tell this in the film because we end the film right on the sort of on the day that he dies. But um, we were in a hotel uh, on the Upper West Side, moving into a house in Tenafly, New Jersey, that he had just finished building. And we were all of the family photos and all of the home movies and all of those things that you keep with you when you're moving were in the hotel room. And so when when he died on that Sunday uh, in 1967, my mother never went back to the hotel room. She was just distraught. And so they threw it all out on the street and the entire legacy. We had to make this film without any home movies. Uh, you know, over the course of time, we did find amazing photos and that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it's really one of the saddest parts of the story is that his legacy was thrown out on the street the day that he died. Wow. That's kind of crazy. Uh, Brett Burns is our guest, and the website is called Bang, the Burt Burns Story dot com. Uh, you can get information. You can buy a copy of the DVD, Bang, the Burt Burns Story. It's really uh, for people who are uh, interested in the history of, of those great records. Uh, the film and uh, Joel Selvin's book, of course, Here Comes the Night, The Dark Soul of Burt Burns, and The Dirty Business of Rhythm and Blues I, uh, make just, you know, devouring, uh, you know, reading and watching. Uh, I've got Benny King's Sea si Senor queued up here. It's one of my favorites it's just kind of very to me like these kind of records are very much your dad you know they just have this huge pop you know they're poppy but they kind of are much they're so involved you know they're huge records yeah he really just brought a confluence of all of these influences on him the latin the r&b you know it all kind of came together in those uh contemporary uh uptown soul records that he was making and i just love those benny king tracks yeah, me too. Uh, let's hear that now. Brett Burns, thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. 
Juanita, my darling, you sure you love me? Si, senor. You feel in your heart you will marry me? Si, senor. You promise to love me the rest of your life? Si, senor. Well, I love Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela. What you say? I love Juanita. Ah, oh, my sweetheart from Venezuela. I teach you the limbo the whole night long. If you do it right, then nothing go wrong. I'll take you to Padre and marry you soon. Oh, I love Juanita. My sweetheart from Venezuela. Sing it, girl. Oh, my sweetheart from Venezuela. <laughs> Forget all the young men that you used to know. Si, senor. I'm sorry, but you wouldn't see them no more. Si, senor. Forget all the parties that you used to go. Si, senor. You know I, I love Juanita. I'm my sweetheart from Venezuela. Sing the song. I love I'm my sweetheart from Venezuela. <laughs> Kiss you each morning again and again. Si, If we should have children, at least you'll have ten. Si, I love you, I love you till death do us part. Si, oh, I love Juanita, I'm my sweetheart from Venezuela, sing the song. I'm my sweetheart from Venezuela, what you say? I'm 